Please turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. We're in verse 1, Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. You guys ready for God to meet you in the Word tonight? If you're familiar with Philippians chapter 4, it doesn't get any better. So this is a great section of Scripture, a lot of wonderful truths for us tonight. We're going to look at the first nine verses uh, this evening. Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's stand together as you're nice and comfortable. Let's stand and seek the Lord together. And let's pray. So some of you are groaning. I, I hear it. You're like, oh. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can come and spend time in your word. And Lord, we just pray right now that you would remove distractions. And we want to declare to you that we love you. God, we give ourselves afresh as a living sacrifice. We put you above every blessing in our lives. Lord, in front of ministry, in front of our families, we're so thankful that you are the Lamb of God that paid the price for our sin. So would you sink these truths deep into our hearts? In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. Tonight, we're going to be looking at the peace that guards the heart. The peace that guards. If you're familiar with the book of Philippians or you've been studying with us, the theme is this, joy. Jesus others you. And when we put our lives in that order, we experience joy. Chapter 1, verse 21 is this, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's the source of joy. My life is Christ. And then chapter 2, others-centered, where we're putting other people's needs above our own, the mind of Christ. You may have noticed so far in the book of Philippians, there's a great emphasis on the mind, the way that we think. And the way that we think ultimately forms our joy in the Lord. So my thoughts are towards Christ. My life is in Christ. I'm placing others before myself. Then in chapter 3 is our attitude towards our own person. And that is to forget those things that lie behind and press forward to the things that lie ahead. To lay hold of the reason for which God has, has saved us. As we come into chapter 4, there's attitudes of a believer. There's things that we should adopt in our, in our behavior that's going to lead to joy in the Lord. We're going to see several of those tonight as we go through these nine verses. Verse 1, it says, Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord beloved. The previous chapter in chapter 3 declared to us that we're citizens of heaven. And in response of being citizens of heaven, that God's going to transform our lowly bodies, what's really important? Paul says, therefore, in light of that truth that we're heaven-bound, he begins to focus on believers. And he says that you're beloved and you're longed for. That's what he describes the church of Philippi. How do we get to that place where we care to that degree for believers? where we could really say, you're beloved, you're longed for. My, my heart aches for this group of believers. I believe it is through prayer. Through praying for other believers, we get connected to them. You're going to find yourself loving believers that you pray for. You also love people that you serve. When you take the time to serve others, care for others, call Christian friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, see how they're doing, sacrifice to meet their needs, you find yourself saying, man, I long for you. I care for you. And Paul goes on to say, you're my joy and you're my crown. This is both in this life and in eternity. 
He's describing believers and he's saying, you're my joy. I've found over the years, I think you've found as well, that there's tremendous joy in investing in other believers, isn't there? Even more so than being invested in. A lot of times we, we want to be invested in. And that's true in our lives. We want to be mentored. We want to be discipled. But there's even more joy in caring for others. Then when we get to heaven, to be able to see brothers and sisters in Christ around the throne room of God is going to bring Paul so much joy. And he's, in essence, he's saying, you're my crown because I'm able to lay you down at the feet of Jesus. If we're really living for heaven and we're thinking about heaven, what are we going to invest our lives in? What's really going to matter? It's people. A relationship with Christ and a relationship with people to invest in others because that's going to last for all of eternity. And that's part of joy. That's part of the attributes of a believer is to say, I'm not going to just focus on my life, but I'm going to focus on others and they become my joy and my crown. He gives this exhortation, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. All right, guys, I don't want you to lose ground. I want you to stand your ground. Stand fast in the Lord. Maybe that's what you need to hear tonight. Maybe you had a long day or a long year. 2016 has maybe been tremendously long already. Stand fast in the Lord. Have that firm footing in the Lord and in his goodness. Verse 2, I implore Iodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Two ladies in the fellowship, in the church, that must be having a disagreement. Paul calls them out by name and says, all right, ladies, it's time to be of the same mind. We don't know the issues of their disagreement, but it must have been pretty well known, pretty significant, pretty severe, because Paul has heard of it while he's in prison in Philippi, to the point that now he's calling them out and saying, time's short. Christ is near, so it's very important that you be of the same mind. Division is something that will face the church. I think it's the greatest enemy of a body of believers for us to divide. Because Satan knows when he's divided us, then he's able to conquer us. Paul doesn't have to try to sort out, hey, you're right and you're wrong. He's able to bring this to solution in one sentence and saying there's a bigger vision. And that's the fact that we're all going to heaven. There's people that aren't going to heaven, that don't know Christ as their Savior. So let's get back on mission. Let's get back on the main point. If you think about a disagreement with a believer in light of eternity, how significant is that fight? How significant is that, that difference? And maybe this is speaking to you tonight. You go, man, I'm, I'm really at odds with this brother or sister in Christ. And for some reason... We're fighting with, with one another. When the body of Christ fights, who bleeds? Christ. Christ is the one who bleeds. Psalms 133, verses 1 through 3, it says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. That also applies to sisterin as well as brethren. It is like oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down to the edge of his garment. It's like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. For the Lord commanded the blessing, life for forever. How good and how pleasant it is for brothers and sisters in Christ 
to dwell together in unity. Isn't that true? It's good. God's blessing throws, flows through unity. Jesus prayed for the unity of the body of Christ, that we would be one just as the Father and Jesus are one. If we desire to see Christ move in our church, move in our city, move in our nation, it's important that we're unified as believers. Are there things to be divided over? Absolutely. What are they? The truth of Scripture, the essentials of the gospel, who Jesus is, how people are saved. This isn't unity at the sake of throwing away the Bible. This is unity inside of the scripture. These ladies are not having a disagreement on the essentials of who Jesus is and the foundations of scripture. There's some argument that has come in between them that is somewhat petty that can be solved and can be set aside by them now being of the same mind in the Lord. It's really applying everything that we've read so far in Philippians, I have a hunch that Paul wrote this letter with this disagreement in mind. Paul's the kind of teacher, he's the kind of pastor where he's going to sneak up on you. You know what I'm saying? Paul could have came out in verse 3 and said, knock it off. You guys got to quit fighting. This division is enough. This is really destroying the work of God in Philippi. But instead, he lays this great framework, this great foundation of who Jesus is, our life in him, that Christ has laid down his life for us. Now he says, okay, ladies, I want you to be on the same mind. I want you to be on the same page. Maybe it's inside of your marriage. You're feeling a little bit of division tonight. It's probably not over the essentials of salvation. Probably not. It's probably something far less significant. And it's a choice to make. We can either be on the same team or we can be on opposing teams. Choose to to be on the same mind. Choose to be on that that same page. We go on into verse 3. It says, I urge you also, true companion, speaking to the church, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are written in the book of life. This is interesting to me that Paul would have to write the church and say, hey, there's this group that has labored with me. There's this group of women that have served with me in the gospel. Can you make sure to care for them? But how quickly we forget the laborers, don't we? We forget the people that are working in in God's field. Maybe it's the missionaries that we support as a church and We forget to pray for them. We forget to send them that note of encouragement, to write them an email or a Facebook message. It's got to mean so much to a missionary that's out on the field. Or maybe it's someone who serves in children's ministry, and they've served for years, and they've blessed several of our kids with, with the word. And when we pick our kids up from children's ministry, say, you know what, thank you so much for investing in my kids Thank you so much for taking the time to to be here and to share the the kingdom of God with them. One of the ladies that is referred to it would be Lydia. She was part of the foundations of the church of Philippi. She labored with Paul, and now Paul's writing, and he's saying, I want you to remember them because they labored with me. Help these women because their names are written in the book of life. These nine verses are connected. They're, They're weaved together. 
Paul's going to go on to talk about rejoicing in the Lord. We rejoice in the Lord because our name is written in the book of life. Paul's trying to settle a disagreement between two ladies whose name is written in the book of life. You might be saying, well, what's the book of life? When someone's saved, when they trust Christ for salvation, he puts their name in the book of life. Their reservation in heaven, having eternal life. So what kind of disagreement do you have with someone whose name is also in the book of life? We're going to spend eternity together. We should probably get along here on earth as well, right? He's still speaking to Iodia and Syntyche in this verse, even though he's moved on to another subject. And the book of life, our reservation in heaven, is the foundation for verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. The word rejoice means to take joy again. Enter into the joy again. Rejoice in the Lord always. No matter what your circumstance is. Paul is living this. It's one thing to say rejoice in the Lord always when things are going good. Paul's in prison. And he's rejoicing in the Lord. He has joy. Now he's reminding the church, saying this is an attribute of your life. Take joy in the Lord always. Take joy in the fact that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. I think sometimes we tend to overanalyze our lives. We tend to try to make sense of our circumstances, to unpack it, to figure out the puzzle. And gang, it's about heaven. God's given you heaven. You know how the story ends. You get to be with Jesus forever. And that's what we take joy in. And we rejoice in the Lord. And then again, it's reinforced. He's saying, again, I say to you, rejoice. Please note that this is a command. It's not a suggestion. And didn't it feel good to come in here on a Wednesday night and rejoice in the Lord and worship? I found myself moved thinking about the Lamb of God being slain for my sins so that my sins are erased. That puts a smile on my face. That causes me to rejoice. Now, is that the first time I've ever thought about or took joy in the fact that Jesus took my place? It's not the first time. But it's just as good tonight as it's ever been. Completely forgiven, completely justified undeserved that God would would take my place. What does it look like to rejoice in the Lord? Maybe something like this. Thank you for being my father. And you're a perfect father. You're my dad. Thank you that you never leave me, that you never forsake me. Thank you that you're my provider. Jesus, thank you that you're the bread of life that you provide what is so needed in my soul. Thank you that you're the living water. Thank you that you're my refuge and strong tower. You're actually entering into the character of God, who God is in relationship with him and taking joy in the Lord. Your soul, my soul, is engineered by God to take joy in something or someone. The question is, is it going to be in the right place? Jeremiah 12 verse 13 says, For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of 
living waters and hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Paraphrase, they rejected their source of joy. Only God could give them living water, but instead they decided to dig their own wells and these wells couldn't satisfy. How many times is that our story? We go and we look for some other pursuit outside of the Lord to find living water. Sometimes we can even do it in good places. You might be looking to your marriage to provide living water, to your children. You might be looking to ministry, to God's people for your source of significance. Is there anything wrong with marriage? No, it's a blessing from God. Is there anything wrong with having children? No, it's a, it's a blessing from God. You might be looking to your education. Anything wrong with education? No. Is there anything wrong with serving the Lord? No. But they were never created to be your living water. Your spouse can't be your living water. Your kids can't be your living water. Your career can't be your living water. Serving in God's kingdom can't be your living water. But you know what? Jesus is our living water. Amen? And it's really easy to get that mixed up and to get that twisted in in our lives and to feel like we have joy when our circumstances are right and our circumstances are correct. John chapter 4, Jesus is at a well. He's thirsty. His disciples have went to go find him some dinner. He's in Samaritan land, Samaritan country. Here also comes a woman to get water from the well. Jesus begins a conversation with her, and he, he says, you know, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask for living water. You would ask for your soul to be satisfied. You would take joy in in the Messiah. In the course of that conversation, the light bulb goes on for her. And she meets the living water. I wonder how many times that Jesus speaks to us, whispers to us, shouts to us, says, if you knew who you were talking to, you'd ask for living water. Try it out. Rejoice in the Lord. It's the command of God. Again, I say, rejoice. Got a lot out of verse 5 today. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. So are you seeing these attributes unfold? We should be peacemakers because we're going to heaven. We should be ones who see relationships get reconciled. That's going to lead to joy that guards our hearts. We should rejoice in the Lord. And we should be gentle. It says, let your gentleness be made known to all. Everyone who knows you, stranger, family member, good friend, it should be known of all believers that we're gentle. This is not an attribute that's valued in our society and and culture. If we had a class on gentleness, it would be empty. No one would come because no one values it. It doesn't seem like an effective way to get things done and achieve goals and have influence and have impact. But what did Jesus say and what did he declare about himself? He said that he was gentle and lowly of heart. What does it mean to be gentle? It's the inner quality where we're reacting with kindness to our circumstances. It's the way that we respond to others. It's being forbearing. It's a non-retaliatory spirit. It's a spirit that when we're provoked, we don't respond in anger. This is difficult, isn't it? It's difficult to live in a manner 
of gentleness. Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness and gentleness are very similar to each other. It's power under control. It's not weakness. It takes much more strength to have self-control. And Jesus says, if you're meek, you're going to inherit the earth. Why is it that we're to be gentle? What does it say in verse 5? Why is this to be an attribute of a believer? Because the Lord's at hand. This is the idea of this verse. Everybody that doesn't know the Lord can be freaking out. But we don't need to be freaking out because Jesus is coming back and he's going to set everything right. So people are concerned with the political situation. I'm concerned with the political situation. It's an area to be in prayer about. It's an area to be engaged about. But we shouldn't be losing our joy over it or losing our peace over it because we know the Lord is at hand. Amen? The Lord is going to, to set everything right. There's a lot happening internationally and terrorism and ISIS and can create a lot of fear. But what's our response to be? Not caught up in the fear, not caught up in the propaganda, being wise, being concerned, but being at a place of gentleness because Why? I know the Lord's in hand. If Christ returns, I think he's going to handle ISIS, don't you? If he doesn't return, ISIS is going to stand before the Lord. Donald Trump's going to stand before the Lord. Hillary Clinton's going to stand before the Lord, emails and all. Okay? The Lord is at hand. Is there a difficult situation at work and a boss that's making your life difficult? Kids are headed back to school, maybe to not an ideal situation. This isn't being apathetic. Gentleness doesn't mean apathy. Jesus was far from apathetic, but he wasn't panicked. He didn't lose his joy. He wasn't stirred up. He was gentle, sober-minded. And we can adopt that same attitude because the Lord's at hand. Christ returns, he deals with that boss. Christ returns, he deals with that difficult school situation. If he doesn't, he's with us as we go through that. So that's the reason we can have gentleness. I really admire gentleness. It may be because my dad is a gentle man. I've always known him to be be gentle. He could be extremely firm when he needed to be firm but always gentle. There was self-control that was met with with that firmness. If you want to get people's attention for Christ in our society, be gentle because it's so rare. You can probably think of one or two people that you know in your life that exude godly gentleness. It's, It's rare, isn't it? And it doesn't come naturally. When someone cuts me off in traffic, it doesn't naturally just that I would be gentle to them in return, right? It's a real work of the Spirit. It's a humility in our lives, aware of our own sin, allowing Christ and the Holy Spirit to rule us and govern us where we can respond in gentleness knowing that Christ is near. Heaven is near. No one's going to get away with anything. Christ is going to set things right. We can stay in that place of wanting to make disciples and and making an impact. 
verses 6 through 9, I hope, are underlined in your Bible, underlined in my Bible, and even more so lived out. Be anxious for nothing. Worry about nothing. This is all going to lead to peace that guards. And first, the Holy Spirit says through the Apostle Paul, I don't want you to worry about anything. Stop worrying. Worry is very dangerous to our Christian walk, isn't it? And it's very easy to begin to worry. Whether it's about financial provision or about a relationship or a problem that a decision needs to be made. To be full of anxiety, to be full of worry. Keep a hand here in Philippians and then turn with me over to Matthew chapter 6. And Jesus addresses worry and gives us some great reasons why we should stop worrying. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Worry fails to see the character of God and his relationship with us. It's a command. Once again, it's a command. Like rejoicing in the Lord, Jesus is saying, do not worry. Be anxious for nothing is what the word of God says. Specifically, don't worry about your clothes. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. The basic provisions. The example is the birds of the air. God takes care of the birds of the air. Do birds work hard? Yes, they do. But who provides for the birds? God does. They're completely dependent upon the provision of God. Birds are doing pretty well, aren't they? Keep multiplying. Keep experiencing the provision of God. And when I worry, I'm not seeing God's character that he promises to provide as a good father. And I'm not seeing my relationship with him. Because he says, Eric, you're more valuable to me than the birds of the air. I know that's not very cultural. It's not politically correct in our day and age, but... It's God's word. He says you're more valuable to him than the animals. You can take it up with God. You're created in the image of God. You're the son of God. You're the daughter of God. The spirit of God lives inside of you. So worry fails to see God's character and his relationship with us. Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So worry accomplishes nothing. That's one of the reasons why God tells us not to worry. Jesus says By worrying, can you get one more inch taller? God's determined how tall you're going to be. Growing up, I always wanted to be taller than my dad and taller than my older brother. I'm a little bit taller than my dad, and I'm a little bit shorter than my older brother. At age 8, I was taller than he was at age 8. At age 10, I was taller than he was when he was 10. The turkey had a real big growth spurt when he was 14. I thought about it. I could do nothing to change it. God determined that. 
It shows us how much God is in control and we're not. So if I'm sitting here getting all spun up and worrying and losing my joy, it doesn't accomplish anything. Let that sink in. Worry doesn't accomplish anything. Verse 28, so why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? We're back to God's character and how he values us. If he clothes the lilies of the field, how much more will he clothe you? Therefore, don't worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Honest questions, good questions. For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own troubles. Worry puts energy in the wrong place. Worry puts focus in the wrong place. Jesus said, instead of worrying about all of your physical provisions, seek first the kingdom. Put the kingdom first in your life, your relationship with the Lord, reaching others with the gospel, encouraging believers, and God will be faithful that all of these things will be added unto you. A pretty good address from the Lord on worry. Psalms 116 verse 7 says, Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Think about how God has been faithful to you. And then allow your soul to return to rest. Proverbs 13 verse 12 says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick. But when desire comes, it's a tree of life. Some of you might have hope deferred tonight. And your heart is sick. I can be a worrier pretty easily. It seems to be in my makeup. When I was a kid growing up, if there was a big test, I would be laying in bed not being able to sleep because I wasn't sure how the test was going to go. I probably should have just studied more and maybe that would have taken away some of the worry that, that was involved. I'd be in Bible college and school ministry just worrying over how life was going to unfold. Feeling a call in my life to to pastor and how did that ever work out towards providing for a family? Education is extremely valued in my my family and I went to a non-accredited Bible college. It's like, man, that's going to get me real far in life. Trying to figure out who I was going to marry how I was going to provide for a family. I mean, I was way out there, way ahead, 19 years old, not being able to sleep over these big questions. You know, and thankfully, it's something that God has worked in my heart and my life over time. And I can still worry with the best of them. But I can say that God has met me in a way where I don't worry anything like I used to. Now, having said that, I'll probably worry a bunch tonight. You may be in a season of worry, a moment of of worry, because there's a lot of pressure in your life. Or you may be a worrier. 
Even when things are going good in your life, you find reasons to worry. Think about what I just said, what we just read in Matthew. Worry fails to see the character of God and how he values us. So it can't just be something that I justify in my life and leave in my life. I've got to take it to the Lord and say, God, help me to see you more clearly. Then make the decision to stop. If God says, do not be anxious for anything, we must have the ability to stop worrying. We can choose to stop worrying and then do what the rest of Philippians says. It says, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So worry about nothing, pray about everything. There's an emphasis on prayer, but in everything, by prayer and supplication. It's emphasized, they're synonyms, prayer and supplication. We're asking, we're seeking, we're knocking. Hezekiah is an example of someone who learned the hard way about taking stresses to the Lord. The Assyrian army came to attack Judah. Hezekiah's first response was, I'm going to strip down the temple to try to bribe the Assyrians. It didn't work. They took the gold and came back to attack again. His second MO was, well, I'm going to go and look for help with the Egyptians. That didn't work. So now they're coming to attack for the third time. Hezekiah gets a threat letter. He does what he should have done at the very first, and he takes this letter into the presence of God with prayer and supplication. He says, God, they're coming after us. God responded to his prayers, and an angel killed 185,000 Assyrians in one evening. We've done that so many times in our lives, haven't we? There's something that's stressing us out. We're threatened by the Assyrians, and we're like, well, I think I can buy them off. Let's try that. Let's empty out the bank account. Oh, that didn't go very good. All right, let's, let's link up with the world. Let's link up with the Egyptians. That, that didn't go very good. Okay, God, here's the difficulty. God is waiting. He's our father, and he longs for us to bring the stress, bring the worry, bring the difficulty right into his presence, into his lap, into his arms through prayer and supplication. There's several times in the scripture where God moves because of the prayers of his people. He's waiting for his people to pray. So worry about nothing, pray about everything. It also says with thanksgiving. So we're thankful for anything. We're praying about everything, but we're thankful for anything. Every good and every perfect gift comes from our Father. So we're taking time to be thankful. From the spiritual gifts to the physical gifts, it all comes from God. We're not in love with the gifts. We're thankful to the giver. Be a grateful person. It goes a long way for your joy and your peace, especially in the midst of trial. So a lot of times for me, I'm thinking through this verse as I'm laying there in bed. It seems to hit me when I'm laying in bed. It's like, okay, I'm gonna stop worrying. I'm gonna start praying. God, here it is. I'm really worried about this financial deal. This relational situation. This decision that I've got to make. And start spending some time being thankful. Start listing it before the Lord. And before you know it, you find yourself in verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Church, there is nothing like the peace of God. You can go to sleep tonight in the peace of God. 
This is a promise that God gives no matter what the circumstance is. There's no clause here. There's no like, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds unless your situation's really bad. You know? The peace of God is greater than the situation. Not to say that your situation's not difficult. Not to say that your situation's is just gonna magically change. But what's the promise? In the midst of the trial, in the midst of the difficulty, we can have peace. That supernatural peace that comes from the Lord. Notice it is surpassing all understanding. It doesn't come from understanding. We've talked about this a lot recently. We've talked about it in our study of Habakkuk. God doesn't explain things to us often. He doesn't give us the laundry list. This is the reason why. He says, are you going to trust me? We have to get to a place where we're willing to receive a peace that doesn't come from an intellectual understanding, and that can be difficult. Well, if I don't understand it, I'm not trusting it. If I can't explain it, I'm not going to receive it. But remember, God's trying to protect us. If if he explained everything to us, it'd probably just cause us even more difficulty. Surpasses understanding and then guards our hearts, guards our minds. Notice the two there. The heart and the mind are prone to worry. The heart and the mind are prone to depart from, from joy and peace. And so God comes in, says, it's all right. And he guards our mind and he guards our hearts through Christ. I want to look at verse 8 and 9 quickly here. I think they're connected. It says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Why does Paul give this exhortation of the thoughts right after this discourse on peace because it will be our thoughts that rob us from the peace of God that return us to a place of worry. God will meet us in worship, meet us in prayer, meet us in a time like this, but by the time we've gotten home and gone to bed, we've talked ourselves back into doom. We've talked ourselves back under that dark cloud of worry, of anxiety, of fear, of doubt, So Paul's saying right here, right now, you think about what's true. You think about what's noble. You think about what's praiseworthy. You think about what has has virtue. Because the battle for peace is found in our mind, in our thoughts. In Isaiah, the prophet said that you have perfect peace for those whose mind is stayed on thee. That our minds are fixed upon the Lord. So this is a great filter for our thoughts. Think about it quickly. True, noble, just, pure, lovely, good report, virtue, praiseworthy. We're told by Paul to take our thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. Thoughts are powerful. Thoughts lead to action and character. And character then defines our lives and our lifestyle. So if I'm going through life and all of a sudden I begin thinking a thought that's not true, I need to take take that captive. If I start thinking, oh, this is going to be the end of me. Smile, the worst is yet to come. You know? Just just start to think in a, a negative way. Well, is that really true? What about heaven? 
Heaven's still yet to come. I don't know if that's true. I don't know if I should be meditating upon that. Nobody likes you there. Nobody's concerned about you. Nobody's worried about the trials that you're going through. Well, is that, is that really true? Is that what God says about the body of Christ? No, that's not really true. I think the key is at the end of verse 8 where it says meditate on these things. Meditate means to turn over and over, to stew over and over, and that's what worry does. It just gets sunk on one thing. Go over and over and over again and meditate on God. Meditate upon, upon his word. And we end with verse 9. These things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Had the church seen Paul rejoice always? Yes. Had the church seen Paul lay aside petty differences for the sake of the kingdom? Yes. Had the church seen Paul experience a peace that surpasses understanding while he's in prison? Yes. So he's saying, guys, you've seen this in me. Now it's time for you to live it and time for you to do it. And the God of peace will be with you. There's four applications from these nine verses, four attributes and attitudes of a believer that lead to peace. First is relationships that need to be reconciled. Maybe it's just time to be of the same mind. Nobody has to be right. We're not talking about heaven or hell, a key theological issue. It's a petty difference. And you can choose to be of the same mind. Also, we see two important attitudes, to rejoice and to be gentle. What great attitudes to inspire to. To go through our days rejoicing in the Lord, singing to the Lord, taking joy in his character and being gentle. I hope if Christ tarries and gives me 30 more years on this planet, I hope I'm a lot more gentle than I am today. Wouldn't that be great? If the Lord gives you another 10 years, five years, no matter the amount of years, the more time we walk with the Lord, the more gentle that we should become. There's peace to be enjoyed here. Where we stop worrying, we're praying about everything, we're being thankful, and we experience the peace of God. This is what I sense from the Lord coming tonight, is that he doesn't just want us to study about peace. He wants to give us peace. He's the Prince of Peace. He wants to trade our worry and anxiety for his peace tonight. And then there's thoughts to be had. There's thoughts to be had. Thoughts that are true. Thoughts that are noble. Thoughts that are praiseworthy. Going to war with our thoughts and bringing them into captivity, into the obedience of Christ. Let's stand and let's pray together. Father, we just ask right now by your grace and your mercy that we could stop worrying, bring our concern to you with thanksgiving and experience your peace that surpasses understanding. God, I pray for those of us that are in a concerned soul state tonight whether it's financial or relational or physical. We came in with stress and worry, thoughts running out of control. 
God, would you meet us with your peace that surpasses understanding? As we come to the communion table tonight, we reflect on the gift of your son. We rejoice in you, Jesus. Jesus, you're our bread of life. Our souls come and meet with you. We know that you've been faithful to us. May you reveal your love afresh to us. Holy Spirit, continue to have your way in our time together. In Jesus' name, amen.